This is John Davis, Senior Minister at Columbia Christian Church here in Columbia, Kentucky. Uh, I want to thank you for listening to this recording. What you're about to hear is an event that we did at Lindsey Wilson College here in Columbia on Wednesday, February 26th. Uh, the voices you're going to hear are uh, myself uh, and Jonathan Wilson from Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, I need to apologize right up front because I did not hit the record button on my recording device uh, soon enough, and when I realized it, Jonathan was already halfway through telling his story to the crowd here at the event, uh, and so you're coming in right in the middle uh, of that, and so you're going to miss some of that. Uh, also, some of the things that are going to be referred to later uh, are referred to in the part that you miss on this recording, and so I, I just need to apologize for that, but we caught most of it. Um, after about halfway through, there's a Q&A session at the end, and you can hear the questions pretty well, and so we left that in, and we wanted you to be able to hear uh, the questions and answers that we received. Uh, if you do not have a church home and you live in the Adair County area, we'd like to invite you to Columbia Christian Church. Uh, we have services Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Uh, our church is located uh, right here in the middle of the city, uh, close to the square. Uh, and so if you don't have a church home, uh, we'd love to invite you to our church and uh, to have you just try us out and uh, see if maybe, maybe Columbia Christian might be a good place uh, for you to be involved. Um, so I hope you enjoy the recording, and I hope it blesses you. Uh, have a great day. So today, I, I'm sitting up here, I'm HIV-free, I'm viral-free, and I'm very happy that I gave up that lifestyle for Jesus. His Word says it's wrong, y'all. It's just, it's wrong. There's five verses in the Bible that blatantly say that it's wrong. First one is in the Old Testament. It offers no hope. It's uh, Leviticus 18, 22. It says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. This is a detestable sin. Where's the question of that? Leviticus 20, 13 says, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, they have both committed a capital offense. They are to be put to death and the blood is on their own heads. Now that's the Old Testament view of homosexuality. Kill them. I would have been stoned 2,000 years ago. 3,000, however long it was that was written. The New Testament gives some hope. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 34. Now, it waylays homosexuality. It waylays it. Can you quote that verse for me? Because yeah. I tangle it up every time I say it. It's uh, first, no, it's Romans 1, verse 34. Romans 1, 32, it says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that was me. I knew that it was wrong. My Southern Baptist upbringing taught me that the Bible is true, it's real, and homosexuality is a sin. But I refused to admit that to myself. And I tried every way in the world to rationalize scripture around to be what I wanted it to be. That was to say that homosexuality is okay and it's not. The activity is not okay. And I was one that, that I was worse yet. I encouraged others to do the same. There's two gay couples that I got together. And sometimes I feel like I need to go and break them up again. I don't know. I can't do that. But I was encouraging others to do the same. I was just what, they, what Paul wrote. I was it. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it says, 
Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals. Then it gets into liars and thieves and gossipers and slanderers and swindlers. Do not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is where there's hope. There's a big but right here. It says, but that is what some of you were. That's what Jonathan was. But you've been washed, you've been made clean by calling the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And that's what I did. Thank you, Lord, I did that. And I've been washed clean. Now, the fifth time in the Bible is in, in Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, I believe it's verses 9 through 11. Okay. It lists homosexuality with, there's like slave traders in there, kidnappers, and a bunch of other sins. But depending on the verse, or I'm sorry, the, the version that you read from, it either says homosexuals, or it says effeminate, or it says perverts. So that's where you have homosexuality in the Bible. Those five, and every one of them condemn it. Every one of them. And believe you me, I tried to make them fit me. I tried to make the Bible fit the way I wanted it to be. And I could not do it. It did not work. So I stand before you a man who lived a gay lifestyle and I left the gay lifestyle for Jesus because his word says to. So thank you. Now, I want you to notice something that, that Jonathan said in there. Jonathan has been saved by Christ. He's been washed by Christ. He has been created new in Christ. But do you know what Christ never did? you know what God never did? Was take away... Jonathan's same-sex attraction. That is never promised in the Bible. And I'm not just talking about same-sex attraction. I'm talking about whatever proclivity you might have to sin. Whatever proclivity you have to sin. When you come to Christ, it's never promised that God will take it away. He might. He might. I have friends who came to Christ and went cold turkey on some things. Just didn't have a desire for it at all anymore. But I have a lot more friends who came to Christ, and now all of a sudden, every day, they've got a cross to bear. And they know what it means to follow Jesus and deny themselves, like he calls us to in Luke 9. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He doesn't just say deny stuff out there, he says deny you, right? Deny yourself. And so one of the, the ways that the church has not taught this well over the years, is that the church has just said, that's bad, don't do it. That's bad, don't do it. Stay away from it. That's bad, don't do it. Right? But you know what that does to the, the teenager who's experiencing same-sex attraction and hears something like Leviticus 18, which is true. It's the Word of God. Right? But if that's all they hear, homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord. Then they grow up thinking, I'm an abomination. I can't say anything about this. I can't let anyone know about this. Meanwhile, the second message they're hearing is from the world. And what's that message? That message is, you do you. You be who you are. You follow your heart. You were made this way. So give in to it. That's the two messages that they're hearing. The church says, don't do it. It's an abomination. Let's not even talk about it. The world says, you be who you are, embrace who you are. Now when they get old enough to have the courage to step out on their own and to not have any more support from mom and dad and the Southern Baptist upbringing, when they get old enough, 
Which message do you think is going to be more compelling? The world's. You do you. Right? Because they think, I can't do anything about this. I didn't ask to have these desires. I didn't want this. But they're there. I can't make them go away. And I've prayed. I've asked God to make them go away. And they're not going away. So what do I do? Well, there's only two options. Either I'm an abomination. And I keep silent my whole life about it. Or... I embrace it. But guess what? There's not only two options. There's a third. The third option is to do what every single Christian does every day. You wake up, you deny yourself, and you take up your cross, and you follow Jesus. And so, I don't experience same-sex attraction like Jonathan does. But guess what? I've got things that I have to deny. I've got things that I have to say no to. That's part of being a mature person. That's part of being a Christian. I have a desire when people make me angry to punch them in the face. I've got to say no to that, right? If I say yes to that, I'm not like doing good for society. I'm not being true to myself and making everyone you know, more happy. That, I've got to say no to that. You've all got proclivities to sin that come up naturally. Now, one of the things we're going to get into here is the book of Romans. We've, we've read one verse from the book of Romans. But in Romans 1, Paul talks about how these relationships that women are having with women and men are having with men are unnatural. They go against nature. They go against the way that God has created us to be. Well, hold on a second. What about the person who experiences same-sex attraction from a young age and says, I was born this way. God made me this way. How can I deny it when God made me like this and God doesn't make mistakes? So what happened? Well, they're forgetting a very, very, very important part of the Bible. And that's Scripture teaches us that when the fall happened, when Adam and Eve sinned, it infected the world. It, just, it didn't just infect your morals. It infected everything. It infected the ground that we live on. And the way it produces fruit and vegetables. It infected the way people are born. It infected our desires. It infected everything. And so we've got things in this world that shouldn't be now. Right? I have a son with autism. It's a brain disorder. That shouldn't exist. Not the way that God created everything in the Garden of Eden. But it does. My son's got it. There's things like Down syndrome. There's things like cancer. There's things like mosquitoes, y'all. Like, the, the stuff that exists in the world that is not supposed to be here is not because God created it like that intentionally. It's because God allowed there to be such a world to where free will beings could choose Him or deny Him. And the first beings chose to deny Him. And when that happened, sin came in and it infected everything. And now the entire creation, Romans 8 says, is waiting for its redemption. And so one of the things that the world is not telling you when they said God made you this way, they're not telling you about the fall. They're not telling you about the infection of sin and how it infects not just our morals, but our desires. Our desires fell with the fall. So, Jonathan, let me ask you this. When you began to tell people that you were gay, when you began to... Uh, live the lifestyle. How did that affect your relationships with family and friends? Oh boy, did it ever. Um, my family had some really, really negative reactions to it. Um, 
my dad made everybody promise not to get in touch with me. Now, my mom did not abide by that. Good old mom. She stayed in my corner. She didn't agree with what I was doing, but she never dropped me. She always sent me cards and letters and gifts and things like that. So it was very nice for her to do that. But my brother said to stay away from his home and to stay away from his children, especially his youngest that hadn't been baptized. You do with whatever you want to do with that. But no, the reactions were very negative, very negative from my family. And I knew growing up that if and when the day that I came out to them, they would throw me away, and they did. Now we've reconciled now that I'm not living that lifestyle and everything is all good in the family now, but for a while it was terrible. It was just awful. Let me ask you this. How did God draw you to himself when you were living that lifestyle, you were embracing it, you were in the midst of it, and yet now you're where you are? Can you take us through what God did to bring you to himself to get you to where you are now versus where you were then? Shamefully, it took death. It did. The death of my boyfriend to get my attention. He tried to get my attention many times. Car wrecks, I flipped the car over three times, totaled it, walked away without a scratch. Had a drunk hit me head on. Uh, it was another wreck, and I walked away without a scratch. I've had five surgeries on my spine. Any one of those I could have coded through, you know, one was a seven-hour surgery that was dangerous. He could have taken me then. He tried to get in touch with me. He tried to get a hold of me, and I wouldn't let him do it. But it took the death of my, my, my best buddy for me to really pay attention to him. Because he meant business. Now, let me ask you this. How did the teaching that you received in churches, maybe growing up or, or even in other times of your life, how did that teaching on this issue help or hurt? Either way. Well, growing up the way that I did, I always agreed with the Scripture. Okay? I always believed what the Bible said. I took it for face value. I tried to make it change, but I couldn't do that. So living that life according to God's Word was not foreign to me. But making myself submit to it is what, it, what, what was the hard thing to do. I had to change me rather than changing the scripture to fit me. Yeah. So the church's teaching didn't really affect me that much as the church's reaction. And my Christian friends, it was about half and half. Half of them had nothing to do with me and half of them were, we love you, we don't agree, but we love you and we'll support you, you know, outside of that relationship that you're in. So it wasn't really the teaching, it was how people reacted. And those people that hated me because of it hate me today. They don't trust me that I've come back to the church. They really don't have much to do with me. And I think, well, that's their loss. I can't change them. But, uh, yeah, it, it was how people reacted to me. And it was, it was half and half. Yeah. Now, let me tell you guys a story about when me and Jonathan first met. And I want this to really stay with you guys because a lot of you are in college. When you graduate from college, life becomes different. You get out on your own. You start trying to live this Christian life apart from all these people who are just like you in the same stage of life as you are, with the same interests as you are. And then you start going and trying to find a church home. And when you start looking for a church home, you walk into churches and you start realizing, wait a second, these people are actually different than me. These, these people don't like the same music I listen to. And these people don't worship like I wish they did. And these people you know, have all kinds of values that are different than mine. And these people are in totally different stages of life than me. That's what happens when you try to find a church home right after college. I've been there, okay? Jonathan did something when he first met me 
that I've never forgot and I will never forget. Jonathan came to the church that, that I was on staff at in Lexington. And when he came, he sat down and he met with the ministers, myself and, and the senior minister. And he said, I struggle with same-sex attraction. And I have lived a homosexual lifestyle before in my life. And I need a church to walk with me through this. And I'm ready to commit to, to a church, but I need the church to commit to me. And I thought, that's exactly what the church is. And that's exactly what church membership should be on the individual's end. So when you guys get the chance to, you know, maybe you're moving back to wherever you're from, or maybe you're, you're staying in Columbia, or maybe you, you'll move somewhere where you've never lived before. But when you find a church that you think you might want to join, you sit down with somebody at that church, and you say, here's me. Do you want this? Because I, I want you guys if you want me. But it's going to take both of us. That's what church is. Church is a, a group of people helping one another follow Jesus until we get to heaven. We need one another. And so Jonathan and I's relationship stems from that. Where from that point on, me and Jonathan met once a week. And we talked about the Bible. And we talked about homosexuality. And we talked about lots of other struggles that you know, didn't have anything to do with homosexuality. But were still very real struggles. And we helped each other walk this Christian life. And so I want you guys to see that because it's a very, very, um, I think, honest and biblical example of someone getting involved in a local church and letting that church know, this is my baggage, I need help, and, and I'm here. So just wanted to share that with you guys. Um, Jonathan, what would you say to someone who is experiencing same-sex attraction? Hmm. First of all, I'd say it's not your fault. You didn't do anything to make it happen. Nobody made anything to make it happen. It's just how you turned out. Unless there's some history of sexual abuse, you know, you can pinpoint that sometimes on it. But for the most part, you didn't do anything. Don't be embarrassed about it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Just live according to God's word and you'll be all right. Um, well, I tell you, you don't have to have sex. That's an option. Celibacy is a good thing. Society pushes you and pushes you and pushes you. Oh, go out and experiment. See what you like. Try this. Try that. No, don't do that. Don't ever have sex just to see what it's like. No, don't do that. Um, third thing I would tell somebody is you don't go to me for your answers. You can go for advice. You can go to your preacher for advice, wisdom. You can go to your friends, your parents for advice and wisdom. But to really cut down to what you can and what you can't do, you go to Jesus. And Jesus will tell you what you can and what you cannot do. That's what I tell. Jonathan talked about celibacy there. Um, one of the things that the world will tell you is that you can't live a fulfilled life unless you gratify your sexuality. You can't live fulfilled unless you gratify your sexual desires. And that's a straight up lie from hell. You do not have to gratify sexual desires to live a full life. You know how I know that? Jesus never did, and he's the fullest human being that ever lived. He never married. He never had sex. 
And he lived the most full life that could ever be lived. And he told us in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. To the full. There's, there's a, I've got a couple books tonight that I'm going to be talking about every now and then. One of them I would highly recommend uh, is this one by a guy named Ed Shaw. It's called Same Sex Attraction in the Church. Uh, originally released in Britain uh, by another name called The Plausibility Problem. And the reason it was called The Plausibility Problem is because the whole point of this book is to show us it is a plausible thing to live single and celibate your whole life. It's a plausible thing. It's not just plausible. Paul actually says it's doable and it's admirable in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Read about the gift of singleness that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In fact, let me read you a part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul talks about lifelong singleness. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. You see what Paul's doing there? He's holding up singleness as a virtue. Single celibacy for your life as a virtue. You will encounter churches who preach marriage like it's the end-all, be-all, and it's not. I'm married, and I've been married for 13 years, and I love my wife, and I have two kids. And that is a fulfillment that Jonathan and I talk about that the Lord has blessed me with and He has not given to Jonathan, right? But it is not what fulfills the desires of your heart. Marriage will not fix you. Marriage will not finally give you that thing that you were looking for. Marriage is a good gift from God, but it's just one of His gifts. And singleness is a good gift from God, and it's one of His gifts. And so Jonathan lives as a single, celibate man. Jonathan, how old are you? 54. 54 years old. Single, celibate man. And you can do this. Because I'm here to tell you, if you're single and celibate, you're going to have to get up every day and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. But if you get married, you're going to have to get up every day and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. Both ways. So don't let anyone tell you marriage is the end-all, be-all. And as long as people are single, we're just trying to get them married. No. No. The church values single people. The church knows that single people have a lot to offer. And the church doesn't exist just to... Put single people together with one another. No. Paul was single. Jesus was single. And there's value in that. Okay? So you need to hear that too. That's part of this, this conversation. So. I do want to say. Yes, go. I love being single. I can drop everything I want and go run. And I can buy the house I want. I can eat the food I want. Buy the car I want. Yeah. I can do anything I want. <laughs> He's not joking. Listen. There, there's a lot of truth to that. If, if I have some trouble. Jonathan can drop what he's doing in Lexington and come down and help me, right? But if Jonathan has trouble in Lexington, I can't just drop what I'm doing. I've got a wife and kids. 
I've got to raise them. I've got, I've got kids that I'm missing bedtime tonight to do this, right? And no offense to y'all, but they're a little bit more important to me than you guys are. <laughs> so there's, there's all kinds of things that marriage brings about that you don't have when you're single. There's trials that you have when you're single that married people don't have. But there's trials that you have when you're married. Paul talked about them. That you have when you're married that single people don't have. Right? One's not greater than the other. Both are gifts that God gives to certain people. Now, Jonathan, let me ask you this. Now, let's talk about the, the way we titled this talk tonight. Okay? Can you be gay and Christian? What's your answer? That's the loaded question yeah. right there. Mm. Well, I have to go by my own experience, and I could not do it. I couldn't be gay and be a Christian. I, I just The two, to me, are mutually exclusive. You've got the Bible saying one thing. You've got the gay world saying just the opposite. And what are you, what, where's, your, where's your commitment and your devotion going to be? Well, mine was to the Bible. So I could not be gay and be a Christian at the same time. It, it conflicted too much with me, and I couldn't do it. I had to quit. If, if I were to answer the same question as a, a pastor and as someone who you know, studies the Bible literally for my job, um, it's like this. If by being gay you mean living the lifestyle and embracing it, well, then no, you can't. Because to come to Christ means you repent and turn from sin. You can struggle with sin and be a Christian. I mean, any of y'all who are Christians know that's what we do, right? But you can't make peace with it. The Bible's very clear. Romans 8.13, you've got to put sin to death by the Spirit. And if you make peace with it, you will die. You will spiritually die if you make peace with sin. You cannot live with sin and embrace it and be a Christian. So if we ask the question frame it in that way, then no, you can't. But if the question is, can you be a person who experiences same-sex attraction and yet still live an honoring-to-God life as a Christian? The answer is yes, absolutely. You can experience same-sex attraction and be a Christian and please God. So the answer to that is yes. Jonathan, is there anything else you want to hit on before we open it up to questions? This is an odd thing to say, but I have to say it. Gay, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s again, it was such a derogatory term that I hate it. I was called it, made fun, bullied, and it's just a bad word to me. I don't like it. And I know a lot of people wear it with pride, but I don't. I don't like fag. I don't like sissy. I don't like queer. Homosexual is the way I like to be referred to and not gay. It's just, it just gets under my skin and I don't like it at all. So yeah. I don't like to be called gay. I'm a homosexual. Thank you. Now, now Jonathan and I have talked about this too. Um, we've talked about sometimes when people refer to themselves as gay, it's like an identity. Yeah. Right? It's their, their identity that they're bringing on themselves. And so I will never tell you I'm sitting next to a gay person, someone who is gay. No, this is a man who is a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction. Do you see the difference there? It's not his identity, right? You are not your sexuality. I don't care who you are. You are not your sexuality. You are not your desires. You are not your struggles. You are a person who experiences that stuff, but that's not who you are, especially if you're a Christian. 
If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. That's who you are. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, 1 John 3, 1. Right? Your identity is in Christ. And it's not in your job, and it's not in your major, and it's not in your, your good works that you do for the world, and it's not in your friends, and it's not in your performance and whatever's the most important thing in your life right now. It's not your identity. If your identity is found in anything else other than Christ, if you live long enough, life will take those things away from you. Life will take away your family if you live long enough. And if your identity was there, you'll be devastated. If you live long enough, life will take away your job and your ability to do that job that you're so passionate about. And if that's where your identity was, you'd be devastated. If you live long enough, life will take away your comforts and your health and your athleticism and all that stuff. And if your identity was there, you'll be devastated. But if your identity is found in something that can never be taken away, then when life takes away all those other things, it'll hurt. It'll stink, but you'll be able to get through it. Because your identity is in Christ. And the world can never take that away. So let's open it up to questions and answers. Um, you guys just raise your hand where you're at. And you know, we'll call on you and ask your question loud if you can. Just so everybody can hear you. But again, nothing is off limits. Ask anything you want. And you know, I reserve the right to say I don't know. But ask anything you want at all. And we will talk about it. Um, We'll, we'll try to address it as best we can, at least as it relates to this topic. So, who's got a question? Anybody? Anybody willing to start us off with something that the, this, this raised in your mind? I have a question. Yeah. What about, like, bisexuality? Okay, what, what's your name? Tell me your name again. Olivia. Olivia. What do you mean, what about it? Like, if someone is attracted to both men and women, but... Say it's like a male and they're dating a female, mm -hmm. which is normal. But yep. say like they break up and then they date a male. Yeah. So when you when you think about bisexuality, and you can chime in on this if you want to, it's pretty much the same biblically because you're just thinking about you know well half of me is is attracted to those of the same sex and half of me is attracted to those of of the opposite sex. Right? You still have to go by the biblical command. So when you look at the Bible, the only sexual uh, expression that is biblical is between a husband and a wife in marriage, monogamous marriage. And so even heterosexual sexual expression outside of marriage is condemned in the Bible. So we're not here to just say the worst sexual sin you can do is homosexuality. No. No, we're all sexual sinners in here. Every single one of us is a sexual sinner. You just might not experience the same sexual temptations that Jonathan does. But the only biblically sanctioned expression of sexuality is within marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. And so even a person who experiences attraction to both sexes Still has to deny that attraction to the op or to the same sex, but they also have to deny their sexual urges to sin outside of marriage with heterosexual acts, just like I do. You got anything to say on that? No. That piece? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Olivia. Who else? Who else got a question? Nick in the back. 
Outside of the church, living my gay life, I was a mess. I was very depressed. I was sad all the time. I was scared. I was scared to die. I believed at that before. I didn't want to go in my sin. My second boyfriend bought me a diamond ring, and I wouldn't wear it because I thought if I died, I'd have to explain to Jesus why I had this man's ring on. <laughs> so, thank you for your comments. I appreciate it very much. Who else? Anything that you would like to ask. Yeah. When you were in any of these relationships, did you ever go to church? And if you did, how were you, how were you treated? I did go to church during the third relationship. And I was treated with open arms. I have to say I was. Now how, 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 uh, how much did you let on when you went to church, though? Several people knew about it. A lot, actually, a lot of people did. I yeah. was quite vocal about it. I wasn't trying to hide anything. Now, do you think when you were embraced with open arms, do you think that was a, uh, a Christian embrace with, you know, love the sinner but, you know, address the sin? Absolutely. Or was it a, uh, an acceptance of homosexuality no. as a biblical thing or anything like that? No, it was not accept. It, they did not accept homosexuality as, as a norm. No, they did not. But they were very supportive of me as a Christian man wanting me to come back to the church. Yeah, that's super encouraging. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, Hi. So, my Sydney, um, I just want to ask a question. Why do you feel like this sin is one that we point out so much above all the rest of the sin? So, like, the question, can you be gay and be a Christian? But, like, we don't ever ask the question, like, can you be self-righteous and still be a Christian? Can you be a liar and still be a Christian? Can you just um, be someone who has a love of money and still be a Christian? Like, right. why is it this sin that we point out? Like above all the other sins. Because it's sexual, it's sex, and it sells. <laughs> 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 like, what would you say to someone, like, someone who's, like, really self-righteous, would you say, like, oh, you are self-righteous, you're sinning, you're not a Christian? Or something? I point out sin all the time to people, but not to their faces. <laughs> but you're right on that. You are. There's lots of things out there that people think they are, and they're not Christian. You know, gossiping. <laughs> It's in the same verse as homosexuality. You know, gospelers do not inherit the kingdom of God. But there it is. So I, I really think it's just what Hollywood is portraying is okay, and the whole world follows Hollywood, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, Sydney, to your question, it's a really good one, because you're right. If, if somebody is self-righteous, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. If somebody is embracing a lifestyle of lying, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. No matter what sin... It is. And it's usually more than one sin. It's, it's tons of sins for all of us. You have to turn from that sin and repent and throw yourself on Christ and ask for forgiveness and try to 
to leave that life of sin, even though you might still struggle with it after you become a Christian. I think the reason why we talk so much about this right now is because culture is talking so much about it. And so we're trying to push back on the, the message that is so prevalent out there. And if there was such a prevalent message about self-righteousness, I'd be, I'd be going around doing talks on self-righteousness. Or if there was such a prevalent uh, message from the culture about, hey, it's, it's okay to lie. Like, you don't ever hear that. The culture never just comes around and says, yeah, just lie to everybody, it's fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if culture was doing that, you'd see a bunch of churches you know, marshalling their resources together to try to combat that false message. So a big part of this is just because culture is talking about it all the time. So we're trying to meet what culture is speaking to right now. And who knows what, what this, you know, this kind of thing will be in 20 years. What will be the, the topic that we're addressing more than others? Right? It's just kind of our cultural moment, so to speak. Who else? Back here. What can we do as a church as a whole to not make this topic, you know, um, being gay and being Christian and being gay and being in the church, you know, stuff like that. What can we do as a church to make that not as down people's throats, I guess, mm -hmm. and not make it seem as if if you're a homosexual, bisexual, you know, everything like that, what can we do as a church to not make it seem as if they're just an outsider and like we can't do anything? Fantastic question. What's your name? Brianna. Thank you, Brianna. Fantastic question. Let me give a couple of uh, uh, let me give a couple of answers from the pastoral side, from someone who's a pastor, and then you know you give it from the side that you've experienced. Um, I think the first thing we can do is to treat this just like it's, we treat other sins. Doesn't matter what sin you struggle with, you have to repent and turn from it. And I've got to struggle with my sinful inclinations, just like he's got to struggle with his. And his aren't worse than mine. Mine aren't worse than his. Both of our sins could keep us out of heaven if we don't turn from them and throw ourselves onto the, the, the arms of Christ. Uh, but Christ's blood is powerful enough to cleanse both of us, no matter what we've done. So we've got to talk about it like that. We've got to quit talking about it like it's the abomination of all abominations. There's, there's tons of other things that the Bible lists as an abomination. You know, disobeying your parents is actually one of them. You know, there's all kinds of other things. Um, so this is not the end-all, be-all. This is not the unforgivable sin. We've got to do that. I think we've got to quit um, stigmatizing singleness. Um, I am not going to go back to my church and create a singles ministry to, to put singles together with other singles. No, I'm going to I'm going to invite people over to be a part of my family life in my house that are single and get them to experience um, friendship and love. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to envelop them into the life of the church just like I would anybody else, because it's not like, you know, there's some group that needs special attention. You know, Paul Paul lists singleness as one of the virtues in 1 Corinthians 7 along with sexual chastity. So we've got to do that. Um, and then we've got to, I think because of our history, the history of the church and the church's message, we've got to be extra sensitive to people. Um, I think it helps to do things like this. Jonathan's doing a really great thing where he's offering himself up and his own vulnerability as, as saying kind of like, okay, I'll go first. So now who else is willing to talk about their own struggle with same-sex attraction? Because let's take the stigma out of it, okay? I struggle with heterosexual lust. I had a real, real problem with pornography earlier in my life, right? That was a, a huge deal to me. If, and if, if I didn't 
put that to death by the Spirit, it could have taken me to hell. Right? But that's different than Jonathan's struggle. So we, we need to create a culture in our churches where confessing sin and talking about sin is normal. And that's hard to do when most people don't want to let anybody else into their, their, their personal lives because it's embarrassing. What do you think? What can the church do to, to make this better? That's a tough question to answer. Coming from my vantage point here, um, I can tell you how I want to be treated by the church just as a normal member of the church. I don't want anything special. I don't want anything you know, above what anybody else would have in the church. And the more normal that you can treat people that are different, if you follow that, I think the better off it should be. That's great. Great question. Great question. Who else? Yes, ma'am, back here. So, um, one of the original writings of the Bible was in Hebrew. I'm not a Bible scholar or anything, but I've heard that homosexuality wasn't even a word in the Hebrew language. So, I was just wondering what like, you thought of the original translation was and how it came into being homosexuality. Yeah, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, except for just a couple places that were written in Aramaic. And the only place that you have this mentioned in the Old Testament is in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And there it doesn't use a single Hebrew word for homosexuality. It just talks about men being with men sexually. Right? So, no, there's not necessarily a word for it like we have a, a one-to-one word for homosexuality. But um, you still see from the book of Leviticus that the fact that God had to create that law... And that God had to communicate that law to his people meant that at least in that area, in the surrounding peoples that they were around, it was an issue. Right? It happened. So the, the, there was all kinds of other cultures where it was accepted. Uh, and since it was accepted in other cultures, God was extremely harsh about it in the Old Testament. And he says, there are certain things, Israelites, my people, there are certain things that if you do them like the other cultures do them, we are going to create capital punishment for those things. One was child sacrifice. A lot of religions back then would sac- they'd sacrifice their own children to these idols so that they could get a good harvest or whatever. And God says, no, if you do that, you're going to be put to death. Uh, another one was disobeying your parents. If, if you cursed your mom or your dad in the Old Testament, you would be made an example and put to death. Now, the reason why this sounds so harsh in the Old Testament is because God is creating a standard for the first time among these people of His own holiness. So, to your question though, homosexuality, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar either. I know Greek, but I don't know much Hebrew at all. But I know in the Old Testament, those are the only two places where it's mentioned. But just because we don't have the word doesn't really necessitate anything. There's, I, I don't think logically there's any... Um, Anything that we can deduce from the fact that they didn't use a one-to-one word in Hebrew for homosexuality that matters for the way we interpret those passages. Does that make sense? Does that help at all answer your question? Okay. Thank you for your question. Who else? What else we got? What's on your mind? Yes, ma'am. Right over here. Legally married in the church, but is this just 
So you're okay. talking about a civil union? Yeah, or like, or like a church that like married them. Like yeah, like, like a church that would accept homosexual okay. marriage. A, a yeah. church that, um, so the purpose of marriage, according to the Bible, and I think the Bible is God's word, so I think this is the purpose of every marriage, is the glory of God. In fact, the purpose of everything is the glory of God. That's why you were created. That's why you made the world. The purpose of everything is the glory of God. A secondary purpose that Paul says in Ephesians 5 is that marriage is supposed to be a display for the gospel. So you're supposed to look at a marriage between a man and a woman and see the gospel in the way that the husband lays down his life for the wife, just like Christ laid down his life for the church, and in the way that the wife submits to her husband in the way that the church submits to Christ. Now, you bring up the, the example of two men. I cannot say that they are married. I just can't say it, because they're not. Marriage was created by God. And when God created marriage, He created it between a man and a woman. And Jesus even mentions as much in Matthew chapter 19. He says, have you not heard from the very beginning, God created them male and female. There's gender. God created them male and female. And what, God, what Jesus is referring to is divorce. They ask him about divorce in Matthew chapter 19. So he uses that God created male and female to show everyone God created marriage. And he created it to be between a husband and a wife. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, with Adam and Eve, we read, And the husband and the wife become one flesh. And God unites them together. So I cannot say that two men are even married. They might be recognized as married by the United States of America, but I have a higher authority, and I believe we all have a higher authority than the, the laws of the land. And so I can't say that they're married at all. If they were living together and not having sex at all, right? Um, they would still not be displaying anything of God's purpose for marriage, considering marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. So, if, if you want to ask a follow-up to that, as to what you were trying to get at with them not having sex, you know, feel free to do that, um, and I'll try to speak to that. But I can't even refer to two men being together as a marriage, because of God creating marriage. Do you, have, do you have any other, you know, follow-ups to that that would explain more what you were thinking? Um, no, that's not what I meant by it. But okay. there are churches that do say marriage. Yes, there are. Now, because those... Now, I, you, you guys use your own judgment here. But just because a church says something is okay, does that make it okay? Or does what's in the Bible make it okay? There are plenty of places out there that call themselves churches that say all kinds of different things. There, there are even plenty of places in Colombia that I would say are churches that disagree with each other on important doctrines, right? And so where's the standard? Is the standard in those churches and what they're teaching? The Catholic Church would tell you yes. The Catholic Church would tell you yes, the, the, the truth comes from the church itself and the church's proclamations. But I, I think that's exactly backwards. The truth comes from the scriptures, the word of God. And then the churches are responsible for interpreting the word of God correctly and teaching it correctly. So my response to that is that church is teaching an unbiblical doctrine. And that church is accepting something that is going against what the Bible has clearly said in six different passages that speak on homosexuality. And then on top of that, the other passages that speak on marriage. Thank you for that question. It's thoughtful. Yes, sir. 
uh, to follow up on what you're saying, you know, we need to be real careful about who we're listening to because, you know, Jim Jones led 960 people to their death by using God's Word. Sure. Uh, David Gress led 150 people to their death by using God's Word. Charles Alpengate led nine people to their death by using God's Word. So we need to be real careful who we're listening to and how we're interpreting it. We need to make sure that we let the Scripture interpret the Scripture instead of, you know, I can give you my opinion of what a verse says, but my opinion is no different than anybody else who's been here. But when we let the Scripture interpret Scripture, that's God's Word telling us what He wants to understand. Yes, sir. Just to make sure you give a question? Uh, just a comment. Okay. Any other questions? Anybody have a question? Yes, sir. This kind of moves out of the realm of whether or not homosexuality is a sin. This is a question posed to me by somebody who's far more highly educated than I am. But do you think a homosexual couple is capable of providing a loving, supportive home to a child? Or, in your opinion, would that be okay? You want to start? Let me start. You've got to define your family. And John is, is defining it. It's between a man and a woman. And if you take two men together to raise a child, they're going to malign that child. They are. If you have two women raising a child, they're going to malign that child. So if you define a, a warm, safe, loving environment, you've got to throw in godly in there also. And so by that definition, the answer is no. Now, now I will say this. There's, there's no denying that there are uh, people who are living homosexual lifestyles who are, who are compassionate, who are thoughtful, who are mature. Right? You, you cannot deny that. You, if you don't know any, you just need to meet more people. Right? There are people out there living a gay lifestyle who are nice and helpful and you know, uh, benefits to society in many ways. Right? But if there's a kid being raised by a homosexual couple... What is the most important job of those parents? Just think about that for a second. I'm a, I'm a dad. What's the most important job that I have for my kids? It's to show them who Jesus is and to help them to know Jesus. And a homosexual couple, inherently in what they're doing, are distorting that. Right? Even if they're, they're extremely loving, even if they're extremely caring and gracious and compassionate, just because of their relationship and what they're going to let that child believe and, and let that child affirm as, as it grows up, they're distorting the most important job that they have as parents, which is to point their kids to Jesus. They're actually pointing their kids away from Jesus. Um, so, no, I do not agree with, with a homosexual couple, like, for instance, being able to adopt uh, kids, you know, from wherever they want and things like that. It's, it has nothing to do with how good of a person they are. It's the very fact that they're, they're union together. And what God has defined as a family is, is on completely different poles. Uh, I saw this hand first. Remind me to get you guys though. Hey, so like, by your definition of like the family unit and a marriage, you're kind of implying that if you're not Christian, you shouldn't get married or have children. No, that's not, not if, if I applied that, I, I made a mistake. Well, Your purpose between a man and a woman 
to God's love. So you're kind of saying that Christians should be the ones to have children and get married. Well, I think that's a logical fallacy that you took from one point to the other. You, what I said did not necessitate what you just took it to. I, now, I just don't understand how you can differentiate between non-Christian people not bringing God into their family and homosexuals not having God in their family. Right. Because like, really they're just, their purpose is to raise a child and make sure it's happy and healthy. That's not their purpose. I would disagree with that completely. Their, so, purpose, their purpose is to show that child who Jesus is and to become Christians themselves even before that. And so there's a deeper purpose than just to raise a child and make it happy and healthy. Not to mention the, the question of what is happy. You know, everybody's definition of happy is going to be different. Keep going, though. It's, it's, it looks like you got something else. Like, okay, so I grew up Southern Baptist Convention. I had a wild streak in me. Like, I, I went through a lot of what you went through. Like, I almost got kicked out of the church because of my, like, sexual attractions and stuff at, like, sixth grade. Like, as still a child. And I didn't find happiness until I left the church. So I, I don't see how you could go back to that just because, like, that's where I came from, like, that strict Southern Baptist. I don't get where you came back, like, came back to that. Like, I respect you for your decision to do that because that took a lot of courage. But I just, I don't see myself happy there. So I just think it's really interesting, like, the way, like, you're defining happiness. I didn't come back to the Southern Baptist Church. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, having said that, I know Southern Baptist churches that you wouldn't have wanted to go back to. And I know Southern Baptist churches that I think you would have wanted to go back to. Mm -hmm. So it's not the Southern Baptists, if that makes sense. It's church to church. Um, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. When you say, um, I, I didn't find happiness until I left that, right? You didn't find happiness in your life until you got away from that. Now, having said that, that's a, you know, I don't want to broad brush the entire Christian community with your experience of Christianity from that particular church, right? The happiness that we're talking about, though, happiness. What is happiness? My definition of happiness might be different than yours, but let me... Present it to you, and then you do what you want with it. I, I care deeply about people being happy, and I care deeply about myself being happy. But I have found, and I believe, and I believe Jonathan has found as well, that you will not find lasting happiness away from God's will. You will find things that appear to be happiness, and then it will turn into something different. He's very right on that, excuse me. When I was living my adulterous, and there were some adultery going on as I slept with married men too. When I was living that life, I had all this attention, all these guys, all these people around me, and I was so lonely and so sad and so unhappy. I was away from the church and I was miserable. And, and the only reason I say that is because experience, scripture, um, <laughs> talking to as many people as I talk to about this stuff all the time, seems to bear out God has created you for Himself and your heart is not happy or your heart does not find rest until it finds rest in God because that's the way He created you. He created you with a, a hole inside of you that can only be filled by Him. Now, if that's not the truth and you go out and you find something different and then you come back to me in, in 10 years and you say, actually, true happiness is found outside of God. 
I'd love to have another conversation with you after that. Time will tell. But I'll tell you right now, I'm 35. What I think makes me happy right now is not what I thought made me happy when I was 18. It's not even close. So just don't trust every feeling that you have. Jeremiah 17 says our hearts are deceitful. They're desperately sick. Not to mention the fact that, I mean, I don't know how old you guys are, but I'm 35. I've only lived 35 years. You think I really know what true happiness is, having lived 35 years on this earth in my limited experience? I've, I've still got a lot to learn. And so that's why I trust something that is outside of me and outside of my time and, and not affected by my own prejudices or my own inexperience or my own fill-in-the-blank. This thing tells me what's going to make me happy. And I've, it's never led me wrong once. Um, over here, who, who did I see? Um, who hasn't asked a question yet? Let me, let me get, get to you guys who have. But was there somebody raising their hand that hadn't asked a question yet? Ma'am, right here. Oh, I didn't have a question. I just want to make a statement. Okay. I kind of like went along with what you had to say. Um, I also grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. But my pastor um, and I are like kind of close. But he told me that happiness is only temporary. But joy is eternal. And the only way you're going to find joy is through God. Happiness is only temporary. Yeah, and there's, there's a sense that that's right. Now, biblically, um, happiness will... You'll find happiness all over the Bible. God wants you to be happy. Um, God commands you to be happy. Did you know that? God actually commands you to be happy in the Bible. To find true happiness. But um, I think you know what she's mentioning right there is... You will find things that make you feel happy, so to speak. And yet it's fleeting. It's not the happiness of the Lord. Um, where do we get? Right here. Um, yeah. This question kind of like when my mind came to my mind when Pat was talking was like, sure. I don't understand how we as Christians can hold people like, if, if homosexual, if they are, like how can we hold Christians, or how can we hold people that aren't Christians to a Christian standard? Hmm. Like we, like, they don't, if they don't believe in God or they don't understand the Bible, then they have no idea. So how can we tell them that, oh, like a homosexual couple, if they're not a Christian, how can we tell them, oh, you're wrong, you don't need to adopt a child? They don't understand, like, if, if that's your belief, but they don't understand that because they're not a Christian, they're not in Christ. Right. How do we present it without being <clears throat> Yeah, I'd say, I'd say two things to that. Number one, you're right in the sense that you cannot expect non-Christians to act like Christians. If you do, you're going to be disappointed all the time. Like, good gracious. You, what you want to do is share the gospel with people and help them to become Christians. And then the teaching starts. But what I will say to that, though, is this. If someone comes up to you and they say, I'm not a Christian. I think murder is okay. So I'm going to go murder this person. What are you going to do? Okay. Are you going to impose your Christianity on them? I'm going to tell them that regardless of my beliefs, but taking someone's life is wrong. Because I know a lot of people that are atheists, but they believe that taking someone's life is wrong. Sure, sure. I'm just saying, you're going to impose your beliefs on them at that point. If, they, if you come up to me and you say, hey, I think it's okay for me to kidnap your kid, sorry, I'm imposing my beliefs on you. <laughs> so, there's... Sorry, there, I don't think those things equate to each other. I don't think we're talking about... Murder and then a homosexual couple adopting a child. They don't need to leave. No, it's an analogy. It's not supposed to equate. It's just an analogy. Anybody else? Yeah, Nick. Yeah. Just a quick question. This, 
this is just a way that I've heard people justify. And it's not like they can make a claim of environment. But they'd say something along the lines of, hey, I don't need, we don't eat shellfish as Christians. Yeah. We eat pork as Christians. <clears throat> there are certain laws that we don't follow. What's the difference between the Leviticus law and about well, sexuality? We're no longer bound by the law. Yep. We're bound by the faith in Jesus Christ. So, I just think it would be helpful if you get it. Yes. You want to do that one? You want me to? You take it. Okay. Seminary. Okay. So, Nick's bringing up a good point. Um, I, I used to watch a show all the time called The West Wing, and it's one of my favorite shows of all time on TV. Great show. But in one episode of The West Wing, the president um, berates a woman for believing that homosexuality is a sin. And he says things like, um, you know, if someone were to uh, dishonor their mother and father, would you stone them to death? And she says, well, of course not. And then he says, um, if someone eats shellfish, would you send them outside of you know, whatever camp you were in and, and put them out of your family and never have them back? And she says, of course not. He uses all of these Old Testament examples of things that we don't do. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. We feel like it's fine to eat shrimp and pork. We feel like um, we don't have to honor Saturday as the Sabbath day anymore. Now, there's all these things that we don't abide by anymore by the Old Testament. So why do we say... That we have to abide by Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. Now here's two reasons. Number one, if you threw out the entire Old Testament, you've still got plenty of places in the New Testament that condemn homosexuality. Right? So homosexuality is clearly a sin in the New Covenant according to places like Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. So the New Covenant reinstates many of the Old Testament commands and some of them are fulfilled in Christ. And the ones that they reinstate, we have to follow continually. So it's, it's still a sin to murder someone. It's still a sin to lie, uh, even though those are Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. But there's one of the Ten Commandments that you don't have to follow today, and that's keep the Sabbath. So now there's a whole discussion that we need to have on, on that, but it's an Old Testament command that is not repeated in the New Testament. Now, the second thing is the Old Testament law is revealing the character of God. And so in the Old Testament laws, you see the character of the God who gave the laws. And so many of those things are continued into the New Testament because they are an expression of God's character. Sacrifices are not continued in the New Testament. Why? We have the once-for-all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And those sacrifices in the Old Testament were just a pointer to that one. Right? So the shadows that become realities in Christ are done away with because they're fulfilled. The character revelations of God in the Old Testament that are repeated in the New uh, continue on. So it's an argument that a lot of people make, but I think it's just one that I, people just don't understand. The Old Covenant, New Covenant, and you know how to interpret the Old Testament on that one. I'd also say you know, something that I talked about, even Old Testament you know, commands being fulfilled, and I have a lot of Yes. Yes. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We're no longer walking to the temple without fear. Yep. Yep. There's. We could do about a ten-week Bible study on that. Um, <laughs> anybody else? What other questions do we have? Uh, let's go with right here. I haven't heard a question from this guy. All right. So we call this the elephant in the church. Um, 
but it's also the elephant in the youth room right now. Where do you start that conversation? Or do you leave alone? You said you were 13 when it clicked. Would there have been something that could have been done to assist you in your walk with Christ? You know, you knowing that and, you know, not be, you were scared to open up about it. The kids these days are less afraid because the culture's telling them to be. What is something that assists you in your walk with that? You gotta think of the culture that I grew up in. I've already said it was a very derogatory term to use the word gay. Um, to assist me. I don't think there could have been anything. Because if somebody had come up to me, like a pastor or a friend, a youth minister, something like that, had come up to me, I would have denied it or I would have run the other way. Um, I had a, a minister one time come to me and say that the elders were going to come and talk to me about it. Because I never had a girlfriend. I didn't have a wife. There was just these little hints and allegations that went along. And they were going to come to me and ask me that. I would have said, well, then I would never come back to that church. I would have been too embarrassed to do it. So, today, because you said it's so much more open, and people just talk about it, I mean, like me here, it's totally different than what it would have been 30, 40 years ago. But today, I just don't have a good answer for that, because I grew up in such a different culture. I'm sorry. I, I used to be a youth minister, and I think one of the, the things that we can do is, number one, we need to create a, an atmosphere among our teenagers and our younger than teenagers where we talk about sin, and we confess sins to one another, and we, we ask each other for help in fighting against sin. So if you do that generally, now all of a sudden, you know, that takes time, that takes uh, a lot of work, but if you can create a culture where it's okay to talk about our sins, well then maybe it's okay to talk about my sins. The ones that I'm embarrassed about, right? And if I can confess my sins in this place, and it's a safe place, and it's a place where they're going to help me fight against it. Right? That's a totally different story. I think it's extremely important that we help teenagers think through this because the messages that they've received from the church and from the world are don't do this, this is the abomination, or be you who you are and embrace it. And then when they get off to college, I've got a family member who that, that was their experience. And then once he got off to college and was old enough to walk away from mom and dad without money support or anything else anymore, he did. And he walked away because he said, that's the only option I have. This is who I am. I can't, I can't deny these urges. We've got to teach our young people that they're going to struggle with proclivities to sin. Some are going to be same-sex attraction. Some are going to be heterosexual lust. Some are going to be anger. Some are going to be you know, uh, self-pity or depression. Fill in the blank. So um, just a couple things that might help a little bit. And letting them know that, like, that's where God wants to meet them anyway. Don't, yeah. don't like, treat them like, yeah. once you confess your sin, okay, look how dirty and gross you are. No, like, God's not done with you yet. Yes. It, it can really help to, to show people godliness is not the person who is absent from sinful desires. Godliness is the person who is uh, willing to confess and repent of those sinful desires. Right? Um, guys, let me tell you real quick. It's about 10 o'clock. It's a little after 10 o'clock. If you need to leave, that's okay. Don't feel bad about that. But questions are going pretty good right now. And we want to continue to have questions and answers with you guys if you guys want to continue to talk with us. If anybody needs to leave, though, we're not going not gonna, to uh, you know, judge you for it or anything like that. I will tell you, um, at the end of this question and answer session, 
I've got six copies of uh, what I think is one of the most helpful little books out there on this topic by Sam Alberry, Is God Anti-Gay? Um, this is a guy who is a pastor who experiences same-sex attraction and is living a celibate single lifestyle uh, and you know, learning how to deal with it. Uh, wrote an excellent little book. Doesn't take much to read it at all, but it really helps you to think through this issue in a biblical way. And we've got six copies to give away later to people who just want to come up and talk afterwards. So that's happening um, later. So I mean, stay if you want to, leave if you want to, no big deal. Uh, but let's let's continue to go with questions. And if anybody needs to leave, perfectly fine. Um, who else? Who else? Right here. Um, how can someone who's like who has same sex You want to go with that? You deny your body and you learn to submit. It's the best I can tell you. Because it's not what I want. You know, I do have same-sex attraction. I'm attracted to men sexually. You know, I, I can't go there. I have to deny myself. I mean, Christ denied himself to death on a cross, a cruel death. And now I can at least say no to men. Yeah, it, it starts with that. Um, I will tell you, though, you need help from other people. Jonathan has been such a great example to me of being vulnerable and honest and asking for help to walk with Christ. And because of what he did, it makes me think, wait a second. I need to go to other people and say, I'm struggling with something else. I need help to walk with Christ. Will you help me? Right? Because... Satan wants you to keep this to yourself, and Satan wants you to think that you can do this by yourself. And that's why we have the church. So, um, yes ma'am. Um, my name's Emmy. And so, you mentioned earlier that when you were living that lifestyle, you were very ashamed, and you were very, you know, you felt really, really bad about yourself. And with the connotation in the, you know, environment, like the church environment, you know, there is a lot of prejudgment given upon you. Do you still feel the same shame from then now? Or, like, how has the Lord, like, either taken away that shame or, like, used that shame to grow you? Forgiveness does a lot for you. And that has taken away my shame. I'm not ashamed of what I did now. There is shame there, but I'm not embarrassed to where I can't talk about it, obviously. I take what's bad and allow God to make it good. He can take all things for those that love Him and are called according to His purpose and make them good. And He has taken my sin and He's made it good. I'm going to be able to share that I'm not in that sin anymore. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. What else? Yes, ma'am. Back here again. You gently go to them in a very non-judgmental way and you share your heart in a very loving friendship way. If you go after somebody with you know, both guns cocked and you're going to tear them apart, you're going to lose them. But going to somebody with love and tenderness and say, I love the same Jesus you do, but this is what I see that the Bible says. There's a lot of gay people out there 
that believe in Jesus, that love Jesus, that go to church every Sunday, but they're misled. And a bunch of them don't even know the Bible says don't do it. No. I always had talks with my boyfriends and people I was dating because I would get really guilty feeling and then they'd be all upset with me. But my third boyfriend, the one that died, did not know that the Old Testament said don't have gay sex. He did not know that. And when I told him, he was kind of freaked out and a little shocked about it. It didn't stop us, but he was not educated that way. He was ignorant about what the Bible said about it. So if you can gently tell them with love and kindness, you'll go a long way with them than if you go and preach at them and hit them over the head with the Bible. Do you think it's possible for, for someone to be truly saved and, and not experience that condition? I, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think all, none of us have an exhaustive knowledge of the Bible right now. Um, there are things that um, there are things that that we have in our lives right now that are sins that, in the Lord's maybe grace or kindness, we are not yet experiencing conviction of, and we will, but but not yet. Um, your conscience can lead you into a right understanding and a right feeling of guilt. If it is properly informed, but if your conscience is misinformed, it can lead you astray. Um, conviction doesn't always happen for those who have been misinformed just out of nowhere. Uh, a lot of times it takes the truth to start conviction. Uh, and so, yes, a person could absolutely be saved because they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have heard that message accurately and they've believed it and repented. But they have not yet learned much of the Bible and much of what God sees as wrong and what God sees as right. And so, yeah, there's, there's plenty of people out there who are um, genuinely saved and yet don't yet feel a proper conviction for some of their sins. Troy? Yeah. Uh, I didn't become a Christian until 19, uh, and so, and radically converted, I mean, you know, instantly knew several things I was doing was wrong. But I also distinctly remember sitting in church going, that's wrong? You know, like, I was doing it, no conviction. I learned about it. Paul says the law is a schoolmaster, that it teaches you. And I felt no guilt about things I was doing wrong, because I didn't know they were wrong. And But once I learned that, that was a different story. And so I think, yeah, I'm definitely saved, and definitely doing things that were sinful, and didn't know they were sinful. Yeah. So, so this goes back again to the importance of having a standard that is outside of yourself, right? Having a standard that all of us can look at and point to. And maybe we disagree on some things on it, but we're all looking at the same standard. And we're all having to reckon with what's actually there. Uh, what else? What else? These are great questions. You guys are doing... I, I just really appreciate you guys asking these. And a lot of these are honest and open. And again, feel free to you know, push back on some of the things we've said with your questions if you want to. It's perfectly okay. I want to just have an open discussion about the truth here. Anything else? Yes, sir. I do have a question going back to what the lady in the pink shirt said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I come from a Southern Baptist home. My dad's actually a Southern Baptist pastor. And this is something that we tend to butt heads over. Not whether or not we believe it's a sin, but whether or not our beliefs, to what extent should our beliefs influence policy? Which, I mean, you said at the beginning of this talk, that's the reason we're having this discussion, because it is on the national stage. 
That's my question. So, to what degree should our beliefs influence policy? Yes. Right. So, you know, one of the things that we believe is this is not a theocracy that we're living in, right? The Israel Israelite community was a theocracy. God made the laws, but we don't live in a theocracy. We live in a democracy, and not everybody's a Christian here, right? There's there's Hindus, there's Buddhists, there's atheists, there's Sikhs, there's fill in the blank in America, and we have this law called freedom of religion, right? That says you are free to worship your God and to assemble for worship your God without fear of punishment. And as Christians, we really value that freedom of religion. But do you value it enough to defend it for other people that, that disagree with your religion, right? I think we have to if we really value it enough to want it for ourselves. But there's a deeper question here. Where do morals come from? Where does right and wrong come from? I think it was, it, it might have been uh, her in the pink shirt. What was your name again? Sydney? Faith. Faith. Okay. Um, that's, it, I think it might have been her that said, even atheists realize murder is wrong. Right? There's a conscience, there's a law that God has written on our hearts. There's a morality that is base level that people can agree on. All right? so, but where does that come from? And I believe it comes from God. And if those things come from God, then you can't get away from your religion influencing your politics or from your religion influencing policies and things like that. So um, while there are policies out there that are not necessarily Christians, that I'm not, Christian policies that I'm not going to fight back against, there are also policies out there that I believe are blatantly anti-Christian that I will fight back against because I think once that policy is put in place to lead people away from God's morality, it will lead to a, a community in the United States or wherever of suffering, right, instead of flourishing. So I think there's no way to get away from some of it, uh, but you always have to remember the United States isn't, you know, the United States of Christianity. It's the United States of smorgasbord of all kinds of different things, with freedom of religion being one of the main rights that we have. So, what else? Mary Beth. Typically, in any conversation about homosexuality, Sodom and Gomorrah is brought up. Yes, ma'am. You're right. What, what do you want us to expand on something on that? Well, it hadn't been brought up tonight. I just wanted. Yeah. When just so you guys know, when you go to the Bible, there's six places the Bible talks about homosexuality. Five, five of them are prohibitions. But one of them is a story in the Old Testament that we refer to as Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Genesis 19, I'd encourage you to read it sometime. Um, it's where we get the term sodomy today. Um, but that, I'll just leave it at that. Go home and read that, that passage. It's one of the places that the Bible speaks about homosexuality, but it's different than all the others because it's a narrative story. Anything else, guys? Anything else? Okay, well, um, Jonathan and I are going to hang out up here uh, when we're done. We've got some books to give away if you want to come get a book. If you want to come ask a personal question that maybe you didn't want to ask out loud, that's fine too. Um, Troy, is it okay if I just pray and we'll dismiss? Okay, so let, let me pray and then we'll be dismissed, guys. Thank you so much for being here. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for tonight and we thank you for this open discussion about your truth and about you and your will for us. And 
your will for people. Uh, God, we pray that um, we pray that you would lead people to yourself. We pray that you would shine the light of the glory of your Son Jesus and His gospel into our hearts. Uh, we thank you so much for the the vulnerability and honesty of Jonathan, and I thank you for the honesty of all those who ask questions. Uh, and God, I pray more than anything that you would lead us to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you.